If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Willers getting booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard. Here, Scott Thompson. Good afternoon. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Uh, everybody's here, uh, except Diana, who's on vacation still. Feel free to jump into the conversation. We would love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Well, not everybody's here. Kurt's not here, and as you've noticed... Uh, Will has been snapping, uh, cutting up an abbreviated version of a, you know, general intro, uh, because he's back at school. So now he hasn't managed to find a time to fit the intro in. (laughs) So, uh, clearly we'll have to, uh, rejig the schedule. So mine fits around his as opposed to the other way around, uh, his fitting, uh, around the show. Uh, but that being said, uh, you know what it's like back to school. Everybody's heads in uh, a different space. Very exciting time. Uh, very cool. And it's great to see, uh, uh, everything getting back to, um, slowly what we remember it to be. Uh, interesting poll question of the day today. Uh, do you think the school year will be disrupted by COVID-19 or a labor dispute? <laughs> wow. You know, that could go either way. We had, uh, the education minister, Stephen Lecce on yesterday. And what I've really noticed about this school year, it started a little, okay, you know, it was getting a little feisty. We were hearing stuff out of, you know, uh, strike votes, whatever. You know, I don't, I don't know. I, I really don't care about the dance anymore. Uh, that's up to that labor union and their, uh, membership. What I care about is the kids being in school and, uh, them getting what they need. Same thing with healthcare. Same thing with all of us. Uh, I think at this point. Uh, but what do you think would disrupt it? 47% are saying a labor dispute, 21% saying COVID, 30% optimistic saying neither. So there you go. Uh, but a fascinating poll question of the day. You can find that on our Twitter account at 900CHML. We would love to hear what uh, your thoughts are on all of this. Lots of stuff going on today, including the Bank of uh, Canada raising the interest rates to 3.25%. Uh, that's up uh, three quarters of a point, 0.75 points. So that's a substantial hike. No sense predicting when the next one's going to be because it will probably rel- be relatively uh, uh, short order. But they say perhaps not as um, not as steep as this one, but again, you never know. All right, here is something that is fascinating. We're going to talk about this coming up a little later on. A new Angus Reed poll, and you know I love the polls. Uh, the new Angus Reed poll, Canadians have less confidence in their health care system than do the Americans. This is a turning point in Canadian history when it comes to health care. Because all we have done, for the as long as I can remember, is brag to everybody about how great our health care system is because it is universal. However, uh, COVID-19 and the global pandemic has showed just exactly how ill-prepared we are. And finally, we're stopping to huff and puff our chests out and realize that we do need some solutions. But when you get to the point where Canadians who often extremely smugly uh, look to the U.S. and we're doing it now when we're trying to find a solution for Canadian health care. Everybody says it's going to be like the Americans. Well, take a look in the mirror because the Americans are more confident in their system than Canadians. 
Canadians are in their own. 92% of Americans have health care coverage, so says CBS News. So, uh, again, uh, time to put away the smug face and get the work done, I would say. All right, let's talk about the interest rate hike. Christia Freeland, the Deputy Prime Minister, talking about the rate hike today. Here's what she had to say. Canada's fundamental institutions is the Bank of Canada. It's not my job to do the bank's job. And I do think it's important for Canadians to recognize that the bank has the mandate and the tools and the expertise to tackle inflation, which is elevated today. You know, speaking more slowly does not make stating the obvious any more attractive. Uh, here's what Christy Freeland had to say on inflation. And inflation is elevated in Canada, but compared to our, poor, our peer countries, it's lower. Inflation in Canada is lower than in the UK, in the US, in Germany, in the Eurozone. And I think all of us were pleased to see the July number receding a little bit from the June number. So I don't want to understate the challenge ahead. But I do want us, as we go into it, to also, as a country, have the confidence that comes from the strength of our foundations. But it sounds like you're telling Canadians they're just going to have to ride it out. Is, is that what we should infer from your answer? No, that, that no, there's I no specific measures to, to help them beyond what was in the budget? No, I didn't say that. I said that we are constantly looking. We're going to continue to do that. I think that's going to be a very important subject of our discussions today and tomorrow. Really didn't say anything. And let's be honest, Europe, the Eurozone, is in the middle of a war zone right now because their energy has been cut off by Russia and the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So to compare our inflation rate to those countries just seems a little bizarre. Uh, here's what uh, William Robson had to say. Uh, he's the head of the C.D. Howe Institute on, on this. They are still in uh, forward guidance mode, and that may be because they are concerned that their credibility on inflation has taken a hit. All right, so there you have it. Uh, the uh, Liberal government is in Vancouver. They are winding up a retreat. Uh, then the caucus, I believe, will head to uh, the East Coast and uh, continue the discussion on uh, inflation, of all things, and how that is uh, affecting Canadians and how they move forward in all of this. All right, speaking of moving forward, uh, coming up an update on uh, that Ukrainian uh, nuclear facility and the inspections that are going on. Also, remember when there was that giant Rogers outage and everybody was stuck or a lot of the people were stuck? There's now a new deal coming out that uh, one system, one company must cover the other if there is such an outage. We'll talk about that. And of course, more on the Bank of Canada rate coming up uh, as well. All right. We certainly know uh, and have been following what's been going on, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, the U UN Atomic Watchdog uh, Agency has urging uh, everyone involved to establish a nuclear safety and security protection zone around this power plant uh, within this war zone, fearing that the obvious, uh, something could trigger a catastrophe in a country still haunted by the Chernobyl disaster. To talk more about all of this, David Novog is with us, professor in the Department of Engineering Physics, McMaster University, and with us now. David, thank you for your time. I hope you're well. 
I'm well, Scott. Thanks for having me. So we've certainly heard about what this concern is and what's been going on around it and that uh, inspectors have been trying to get in to, to figure out uh, exactly what is going on and any damage done. What do we know from those inspections at this point? So the, the team of experts from, uh, from the UN uh, arrived last week, I think about six total people, including the, the, the director, and uh, they did an assessment of the situation and they, they, some, some of the team has now left and uh, the remainder of the team is there. And I think one key aspect is, is, the, is the UN is insisting that some of their staff stay at, at that power plant permanently. So that they'll have a constant, uh, you know, feed on the ground to provide them updated information. Because, you know, when you're getting information from secondary sources, hmm. uh, you know, sometimes tertiary sources, you, you can't always uh, put faith in all the numbers and information you're getting. So I think having permanent staff there would be a, a really big improvement to the situation. So the primary reason for the staff there is to translate information, to pass, make sure information's being uh, moving back and forth. I think in the longer term, yeah. I think in the short term, it was to inspect some of the key facilities there and to check on, you know, the human health of the workers who are who are being forced, you know, to work in that kind of environment. Um, so I think that there's a report on that situation, both on the current status of the plant as well as the workers, that should be uh, made available in the next week or two. But in the longer term, yeah, certainly, it's it's to have people there who can relay information uh, reliably and, and provide updates as needed. You said info coming out in the next week or so. What do we know about the condition of the plant itself? Is it safe? And as you mentioned, the workers inside. Yeah, so I, I think, first of all, I, I'll start with the second half of that, which is the is the worker side. You know, that's probably the, the piece of information we know the least about, uh, you know, what the numbers of hours worked and the stresses and amount of downtime. Uh, you know, these, these are the people who operate nuclear power plants go through years of training and, and have a fairly stressful job. And so it's important that, that you know, we, we manage their time. So I think that's probably an area we know the least about and probably one of the areas uh, I'd be interested in, in learning more about when that report comes out is, you know, how are the workers managing to deal with this situation when they have family members, you know, in the region who are who are either fighting or had to be evacuated. And, and, and you know, it's, it's, it's really an unfortunate uh, situation for them to be in. On the status of the nuclear plant, um, I believe last time I checked one of the nuclear plants, there, there's multiple units and multiple nuclear plants operating uh, there. And, and, and at this time, only one is functioning. The rest have been shut down and put into a safe state. Uh, one is kept operating both to provide power, but it's also that one unit is used to supply power to the other safety systems within the plant. Right. Because should there be a cut of a line or an explosion in, in the power lines feeding the power plant, you want to have some power available to keep the lights on to make sure, you know, you're able to do your daily routine. Um, so, so right now, I think they're kind of in a holding pattern where they have one unit that's stable and operating, several units shut down, and, and a tie-in to the power system that's still ongoing. So at this point, really, David, this is all about safety and security as far as uh, as opposed to uh, getting this thing refired. Yeah, yeah. I, I you know, I, I don't know what the electricity demands are in the Ukraine right now. But really, I think the, 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 the current status of the plan is really just about focusing on maintaining 
you know, electrical power to the plant, maintaining, you know, worker health and safety and ensuring that the safety systems are are still poised and, and up to fully functioning capability should something go wrong or there be some inadvertent military operation that damages something else at the plant. So you talked about having a a communication staff at least there uh, all the time just to keep everybody abreast of what is going on and, and kind of uh, be neutral in all of this. Uh, is is there any chance that will fly, keeping a staff back like that? Uh, is there any chance we'll get into any sort of neutral operators just to, again, keep this uh, safe and, and this security protection zone intact? Yeah, I, you know, I'm hoping that some form of, of uh, you know, uh, neutral observers can be put in place. That is the plan from the UN is to, is to keep two staff there as a, as a way to maintain communications between, you know, the management at that plant and, 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 the, and the rest of the world. So really, I think that would go a long way in, in, in securing the, the communication and, and our awareness of what's going on at the plant. Um, you know, getting information is not been easy and it's probably, you know, not going to improve anytime soon. So having, having a direct feed from experts who are there every day and observing any changes would, would provide, I think, a, an extra layer of assurance to everybody else in the region. What about a nuclear safety and protection zone around it and making it completely off limits? Or is that asking too much, do you think? Well, I, I'm not a I'm not a military person. I, I mean mm-hmm. that that ideally would be something you know we should we should work towards uh, as soon as possible. But um, you know it's you hear sides from or you hear some parts of the story from from different sides of what's going on there. Uh, you know, I was reading even today about uh, some paramilitary strike along the river and and other things that you don't know what is the truth and and what's actually going on. So. Um, demilitarizing that zone, removing all equipment out of there, and just leaving it as a as a uh, independent operating base would be, uh, or in, independent operating power station would be the best possible situation right now. But I, I'm, you know, the more I read in the news, the the less likely I think that that's going to happen. You know, anytime soon. David Novog with us, professor in the Department of Engineering, Physics, McMaster, talking about uh, that uh, nuclear plant uh, that uh, is in the war zone, Russia invasion of Ukraine, and trying to keep that entire area safe. David, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Yes, Scott, thank you very much for having me, and have a good day. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. I already saw Carmi Levy on TV earlier this morning talking about uh, the new Apple iPhone 652. And I thought, you know, that is, that's just not a strong enough topic for me to have the Carmi on. We need something better, and boy, do we have it now. A uh, federal industry minister, uh, minister says Canada's major telecom companies have reached a formal agreement to ensure and guarantee emergency roaming and other mutual assistance in the case of a major outage, as we all experienced uh, this summer with Rogers when they went down. Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist with us now. Carmi, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Oh, I am. I have to thank you, Scott, for rescuing me from, you know, Apple, uh, Apple insanity. It was good. That's, I, I, I was getting it. sucked into it. You pulled me back. That's it. I, I could tell you. Were, oh, great. Well, oh, by the way, okay, let's spend 10 seconds on it. What does this one have? The other ones don't? Uh, it, it, it's got satellite emergency connectivity. Um, it, it doesn't have the higher end. The, the pro models don't have the notch anymore. They have a 
pill-shaped cutout, which is one of those, ooh, I've got to, I've got to have that. Um, and it's a, you know, the higher-end models, the pros, have a faster processor. So basically, take last year's event, recycle it for today with kind of a few different words, and you, you pretty much know what you're dealing with. If you bought a phone in the last year or two, hold on to it. There's no need to update. Hold on to your money. We're going into some pretty tough economic times. I can think of many things better to buy than a phone. What does an iPhone start at now? $1,099 Canadian for the basic iPhone 14. And the change here is that Apple has gotten rid of the mini, which used to start at $949. So, right. so now your cost of entry, $150 more. And this is kind of, it kind of echoes where Apple has gone in recent years. They've been creeping up the price of entry. The interesting thing about the iPhone 14, it's got mostly the same internals, the same processor, the same guts as last year's model, which is the first time in the history of the iPhone that they've done that. They haven't given all their models a new processor. So basically what Apple's doing, they're trying to live in an inflationary period, uh, but they're cheapen cheapening out their products to hold the line on price. Uh, but it's still an expensive premium product, and it's going to cost you more this year. Shrinkflation. All right. So, mm -hmm. all right. So, you talked about satellite and connectivity and such. Uh, we all remember the Rogers outage in the summer, and 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 what that did to many situations, whether it's compromising safety, finance, personal communication, what have you. What have they done today? What is this doing? It sounds like if one drops the ball, the rest all jump and try to prevent it from hitting the ground. Yeah, so the good news here is, and I remember at the time, uh, Francois-Philippe Champagne, he's the Minister of Innovation, Science and Industry, federal minister, and he ordered not just Rogers, but all of the major telecommunications companies to get together and come up with a plan so that this would never happen again, that if one of them had a major outage, that the others would be available to help at least provide a backup for 911, because as we know what happened during the Rogers outage, you couldn't make 911 calls because the emergency dispatch system was sitting on Rogers infrastructure. Other companies, including Bell, stepped forward saying, hey, we'd love to help you. Rogers declined because they weren't set up to accept their help. They couldn't move the traffic over. So just an absolute mess on so many levels that we couldn't see this beforehand. It was, it was an outrage. So that's the only word I can use to describe it. Well, the minister ordered the telcos to say, hey, get together in a room figure it out. I'm giving you 60 days to come up with a plan so that you can help each other when this happens. We can never lose 911 service again. And that's where we're at now. They've announced that they've reached a deal, a formal agreement to guarantee emergency roaming and other mutual assistance, which they don't describe, but you figure do whatever it takes in case there is a major outage. So hopefully what we saw on July 8th, I mean, it's not that we're not going to see outages again, but we're not going to see the the three stooges running around a room mm. kind of reaction where where they can't get help from their competitors. At least that will be addressed next time this happens. And you said the systems weren't even in place if they wanted to do this. And and as you mentioned, you used the term beforehand. Uh, as, before we came on the air, I was thinking about this. It, so there's all these really smart people, technological uh, technologically advanced people like yourself sitting in a room. Is nobody sitting there going? Okay, so if one of these players goes down, what happens? Like, did nobody have that conversation? Uh, apparently not, because if they had had that conversation, we would not have seen the kind of cascading impact that we saw on July 8th. And that's what most shocked me about it. Not that there was an outage. Outages happen in information technology yeah. and telecommunications all the time. It's the lack of redundancy. It's the lack of advanced planning, the lack of understanding of what would happen when something like this occurred and what your plan B and C and D and so on were supposed to be. I've worked in IT. Uh, I've worked in mission critical 
political environments where you have a war room when major systems go down. I've been in those rooms when things have happened. And you always have a plan because guess what? If you don't, you're not coming back tomorrow. You're fired. And so I was astounded that we even got to that point. And I've been asking the question ever since. Why did we not ask those questions before? Why did we not have answers? Why were the telecommunication companies, and it's not just Rogers, it's all of them, why did they not have all of this in place? And I think the answer is they didn't have to. The government, in its infinite wisdom, the CRTC, Industry Canada, did not require, did not have regulations, did not have any legislation that required them to spend the money on these kinds yeah. of backup systems and processes. And to me, that is another major gap for Canadians. It's one of those red swinging sirens that, I, that sort of went off in my head. That should not be in a country like Canada. So perhaps like just didn't realize the impact, was not focused on this issue, didn't realize the impact this would have if it did happen. Yeah, or they simply didn't, they, they didn't think that it would ever get to that point. They yeah. were only too happy to rake in billions of dollars in revenue. Uh, and, and no one was telling them, go spend some of that money on backup systems. Go spend some of that money on partnerships with other telecommunications companies. And that's the problem with this industry in general. They, they live off the fat of the land. They're happy to rake in the dollars. But no one's making them spend on the unsexy back-end stuff that nobody pays attention to until, of course, something like July 8th happens. And that's the problem. It's like insurance. Nobody talks about it until yeah. there's a major flood, there's a major event, and then we're like, oh, I wish we had more insurance. The telecommunications industry needs to change, and the government, through its regulatory agency, the CRTC, needs to grow a spine. You know, every, it seems every time I talk to a technology analyst like yourself, I mean, they, they really push a couple of things, changing the passwords, keeping secure, uh, being secure, and backing things up. It amazes me that companies this size don't take their own info. Yeah, quite, quite shocking, um, because I, I expected better, and I think, I think a lot of us learned the hard way on July 8th that that wasn't the case. Um, and it was a very eye-opening day for all of us for all of the wrong reasons. Uh, a company that does not have a disaster recovery plan or a what we call business continuity plan, in other words, what do you do when the worst happens, um, is a company that frankly doesn't deserve to be in business. No organization uh, in any sector of any size, of any sophistication, uh, should be in business without all of these plans, not just documented, but actually pulled off the shelf every, you know, on a regular basis and worked through so that everybody practices, knows what to happen. You know, if you are, for example, I, I look to the U.S. Navy where, you know, they, all they do when they're, when they're in a submarine or where they're on, when they're on a ship, they're practicing for disaster scenarios, honing mm. their skills to an absolutely fine edge. Why is Rogers and why are Bell and why are all the others, why are they not doing that as well? I want to know that that's happening. And I want someone to hold their feet to the fire to ensure that that's, that's happening. And if it doesn't, that somebody pays. Uh, obviously, we're out of, here t uh, out of time here, Carmi. But I got to know, like, uh, uh, there's a big ownership deal in here in the works here. Does this affect this in any way? Are, are Canadians going to reject this? Uh, I sure hope so, uh, because again, it's it's those mega deals. In this case, it's Rogers buying Shaw that got us here in the first place. The the trend toward conglomeration is what has made uh, these companies so thin on the inside, makes these kinds of outages more likely to happen. Gives Canadians fewer options to cross the street when they're not happy with their players. So uh, I would like to see this deal stopped if possible, or at least the government say, "Hey, wait a second, this isn't working in Canadians' best interest. We got to change the way things are done." Carmen Levy, technology analyst and journalist, talking about uh, the big failure in the summer and how we stop that from happening again. Carmi, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Really appreciate it, Scott. Thanks. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with
with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. The Bank of Canada has raised its benchmark interest rate three quarters of a percentage point uh, today, and um, it, it may not be the last one. Uh, the central bank's policy rate now stands at 3.25%. It's the fifth rate hike so far in uh, the last little while. And uh, remember, it sat at just 0.25% back in January. To talk more about all of this, Doug Hoyes is with us, finance expert with Hoyes, Michaelis and Associates, and is with us now. Doug, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm happy to be with you, Scott. Are you surprised at the amount of this uh, increase, Doug, that it's at uh, 0.75%? Not really. I mean, they've kind of been telegraphing this uh, for, you know, the last few weeks, so I don't think it was a shock. I mean, okay, I guess I wouldn't have been shocked if it was half a point or a full point, but three-quarters of a point is kind of where everyone thought it would shake out, and so here we are. Are we playing catch-up still? Yeah, and I guess the pundits will say that if the whole point of this exercise is to reduce inflation, and inflation has been going up for many, many months, then why was it? Why did they wait until March to start raising these rates? As you said, there's been five of them this year, but if they saw this coming, why didn't they start doing it last year so that we'd be done by now? So I, I think that's probably the biggest criticism, that it's taken them this long to do it. Um, but, you know, not our job to second-guess uh, the people in Ottawa, I guess. Uh, and has the Bank of Canada taken a credibility hit because of this? Um, I've never really heard those, you know, terms used in, in the past. Is something different now? I think so, and I think, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of a lot of stuff has happened over the last two or three years. So I guess yeah. you got to kind of forgive them for we're in the fog of war, and it's kind of hard to to figure out what to do, but. I guess on its most basic level, we know that the federal government ran significant deficits in 2020 because of all the stuff that happened, and that's it's not surprising that that would lead to inflation. So why was there this delay in increasing the rates? It's highly unusual to be increasing rates as you are heading into a recession or already in a recession. That seems a little bit backwards. So I think the the main criticism is that if this is the right thing to do, and we can debate that, if anything, it's uh, it's late. It, It should have been done sooner. So is it the right thing to do? Well, ask me in five years, and I'll tell you what the impact of it all was, and we'll be able to to figure it out. I mean, what they are obviously trying to do is reduce inflation, and as a result, you know, keep the economy, you know, stable. They're trying to do the soft landing. But with the the speed that they've increased rates, that's going to put the brakes on a whole lot of stuff. I mean, just take a look at mortgage rates here. Mm. So... You know, every if you get a five hundred thousand dollar mortgage, you know, twenty five year amortization, every percentage point they increase it is roughly two hundred fifty bucks a month in mortgage payments. Well, we've gone up three percentage points, three hundred basis points since March. So that's seven hundred and fifty bucks more in your mortgage, and that's just your mortgage. That's not your variable rate line of credit, your HELOC, whatever else. So. There's tons of people out there who are now paying $1,000 more a month, $1,500 more a month in in interest costs. And unless their paycheck after tax has gone up by that amount, 
they're in the hole. Oh, guess what? Everything at the grocery store is also more expensive, and a whole bunch of other stuff is more expensive. So we've got a whole, let, a whole lot less cash in our pockets. Wages aren't keeping up with that increase. Less money to spend. That's the kind of thing that throws you into a recession, means you end up having job losses in the future, and that really hurts the economy. So, But all of these things happen with a lag. It's not like interest rates go up today and there's hmm. massive problems tomorrow. It takes time. So that, that's, that's the big question. How long is it going to take to filter through? And it seemed in some ways this was to cool the red-hot housing market, uh, which was, was, was going through the roof. Uh, that has happened. Uh, however, uh, what's the long-term effect of that? Yeah, exactly, because everything in the housing market is based on perception. So back last year, everybody was, hey, I better hurry up and buy a house before it goes up in price too much. And so there was buying, buying, buying. Now everyone's sitting back going, well, prices will probably be lower next month, so I'm not going to buy. And that just deflates it really quickly. So, um, yeah, I mean, great to be a buyer now, I guess. Not so great to be a seller. And again, are we near the end of this? Are things going to start you know, bouncing back early next year? Or are we into a two- or three-year downslide? Nobody knows. That's what makes this all so frustrating. Uh, federal government meeting in Vancouver to talk about strategy, and specifically they're focusing on affordability. What can they do to help? Well, I, I guess you know, jacking up interest rates is a great way to make things more affordable if you greater <laughs> prices, um, and maybe that's what they're what they're thinking. But again, they've kind of caused this mess with ultra low interest rates for years and years. So um, uh, you know that, that's they've they've perhaps been the architect of the problem. What I don't know because there's no transparency on it is. All of the houses and condos that are being purchased, are they being purchased by people to live in? Are they being purchased by investors? Are they Canadian investors, foreign investors? I'd kind of like some transparency on that to know. Maybe part of the answer is we've got to limit some foreign investment to keep, uh, you know, to make housing something we live in rather than investment. Than investment. Mm. But we're not there yet, obviously. And what does that say about supply, if that's what we're investing in? Uh, Doug Hoyes with us, finance expert with Hoyes, Michaelis, and Associates. Doug, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Great to talk to you, Scott. We saw last week uh, Christia Freeland in Alberta, Deputy uh, Prime Minister Christia Freeling being verbally uh, abused by uh, someone who didn't see eye to eye with her. Uh, is Canada seeing a growing risk of political violence? Is Why is this happening now? Um We'll leave it at that. Uh, it was interesting that uh, it was just a few weeks ago or months ago, Christia Freeland, uh, I remember, uh, was talking to her U.S. counterparts, and they were asking why she didn't have a security detail, and she was bragging about being able to ride her bike to work. Is uh, that naive? Is it wishful thinking? Uh, have things changed now? Let's bring in Phil Gursky, President, Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, Distinguished Fellow with the University of Ottawa's National Security Program, former CSIS analyst with us now. Phil, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yes, Scott. How are you today, sir? I'm doing good so far, thanks. Is it getting worse? Um, should we be looking at more security for our politicians? Wow, uh, what a great question. Um, so as you're aware, Scott, that Andrew Coyne of the Globe Mail published a piece just this morning saying that yeah. he thinks it's, it's getting worse and something might happen. Really hard to tell. I, I just kind of want to remind the listeners a couple of things, Scott. Um, first and foremost, Andrew Coyne is a very good writer. I think he knows what he's talking about. But he, he equates the increase in, in idiocy and statements online with an inevitable increase in events in the real world. It doesn't work that way. Certainly when I worked at CSIS and I focused on Islamist extremism, not the far right, the vast majority of people uh, about whom we were concerned because of what they were thinking and what they were writing 
were either cowards or were incompetent. So it's not a one-to-one relationship. It's not even, it's not even a hundred-to-one relationship, Scott. Which is not to say that it can't happen, but I, I, I get a little worried when people start fear-mongering about an in, inevitability of political violence. We, we've been relatively immune from that, Canada, thank, thankfully. But I just don't see where Mr. Cohen is going in, in his dire predictions that this is inevitable. Uh, so if people are angry, do we adjust the security to combat that anger or do we try to find out why they're angry? I think a bit of both. Uh, your, your comment about Christian freedom was very interesting, Scott. You know, we do live here in Canada where politicians and you know, the deputy prime minister, like the second in command, rides her bike to work. That, that's an yeah. incredible statement about Canada. And we should be very proud of that as a nation. Is it, have we, have we gone past that? Eh, really hard to say. I, I would simply add as well that, you know, the RCMP, which obviously provides protective detail, uh, they're very much aware of these cases as well. And if, if they think that these people need more protection, they'll grant it. But I'm not sure that we as a nation want to make this sort of a, you know, a, a regular thing. I think what we've established is really good and very envious. And we don't want to overreact to the, this, this, this anger. It's, it's real. But again, I, I don't I don't see it mapping one to one between someone being angry and someone taking a pot shot or a knife attack, as we saw in Saskatchewan the past couple couple of days at one of our politicians. Is it more real if you don't address the situation? I mean, it, it's it doesn't even seem to be well. It is politically polarizing, but it just the anger you get is is from a feeling. You, I'm thinking is my interpretation that people are just not being heard. They just get the feeling that you know this politician's not listening to me, so I have to go and confront them and scream at them. I think you're right. I think that um, the vast majority of people, all they want to do is they want to have their voices heard and they'll go away. They'll be satisfied they had a conversation. Yeah. There will always be a small minority, Scott, that no matter what you tell them, they're going to ignore it or disagree with it or, or tell, yeah. tell you're not listening to them. And they might go to the nth degree, but that's a very, very small minority. So these may be unpopular views among certain people, but um, yeah, the dialogue has to continue and politicians have to address some very uncomfortable questions on all sides of the political spectrum because that's what a democracy does. It's that we're addressing others' behavior, but we're not addressing our own because our own is more respectful than theirs is. But that doesn't mean it doesn't need addressing. 100%. Like I said, no one goes into politics thinking it's going to be easy. Uh, mm. You know, no country, including Canada, has 100% support for the government. There's always opposition. And maybe the opposition doesn't make sense sometimes, but you have to at least acknowledge it. That's what a democracy is. It's about opposition. It's about being able to express your views as long as those views don't lead to potential acts of violence you know they can be hateful to an extent but not if, if, if violence is a real possibility so yeah let's have those dialogue let's not call these people crazy let's not reject them for what they're saying let's have a dialogue and the ones that may be a little bit you know problematic that's where your security forces come in is this a gender issue because i have a feeling whether it was christia freeland or justin trudeau the message would have been the same I don't know about that so much, Scott. I mean, gender in the no? sense that it's mostly men <laughs> do these things. Yeah. Uh, well, h- hello. If you look at violent uh, trends around the world, it's yeah. mostly men, not women to begin with. So I'm not sure it's as much. It's not targeting women. It's targeting the governing party because the governing party yeah. is doing things and saying things that people disagree with and they're expressing their views. So are we going to see a, a, a revisit here? Or are we going to see a more physical presence around our politicians, do you think? I think we're going to. I think they're, again, and, and partly because there's a fear out there. There's a fear that, as Mr. Coyne wrote, 
it almost seems like people are expecting an act of violence to happen, whether it does or, or whether or not it does or doesn't. They're going to feel they have to take those protective measures. And some would argue that maybe Canada needs to do that more routinely for the prime minister, deputy prime minister, etc. But again, do we really want to live in a society where our politicians are living behind a security bubble? I don't want to live in that society, Scott. I don't think you do either. Phil Gursky with us, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, distinguished fellow with the University of Ottawa's National Security Program and former CSIS analyst. As always, Phil, great conversation. Thanks for the time. Be well. You too, sir. We'll talk soon. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Abacus Data has recently completed a national survey, and the results show the shifts against the Liberals and Prime Minister Trudeau have stopped, and the Liberals and Conservatives are virtually deadlocked at this point. To talk more about all of this, David Coletto is with us, founding partner of Abacus Data, and with us now. David, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well, Scott. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Thanks so much. Uh, the Prime Minister has been out and about a lot in the last uh, few weeks of summer. Has this helped? I think it, it's helped to some extent. You know, you had a, a state visit from the German Chancellor. You had the, the Prime Minister, um, you know, crossing the country, as you said, meeting with people in their own communities, getting out of Ottawa, which I live in, but you need to get out of Ottawa every now and then. And I also think that some of the pressure on the government around um, you know, inflation, gas prices um, also has helped kind of alleviate some of that pressure. Now, you know, our poll showed that that the, the bleeding may have stopped, but, he, you know, the government is still close to its worst approval rating that it's had since it was elected. Um, the prime minister's negatives remain elevated. But all that to be said, as the conservatives are about to choose their new leader this weekend, um, it feels exactly like if you ask people how they would vote, the results would be almost exactly the same as they were uh, last year at this time when we all voted. So, you know, despite this, um, it's it's not a lot has changed in terms of how people feel about the choices they have in terms of uh, the parties available to them. How difficult is it to gauge who is out front when uh, one party doesn't have a leader? Does that how does that change? Things? Well, it, it, yeah, it, it's it's kind of an artificial measure. I think it it shows that um, you know people people are, are kind of placing themselves where they might normally be. But certainly, mm. you know, everyone expects Pierre Polyev to become conservative leader over the weekend. Um, that might change the the calculus um, as as people get to know him, right? In our survey more than half of Canadians don't have an opinion about Mr. Polyev or say they have a neutral opinion. So for, for the vast majority of people, they still don't really know who he is. So that will, that will come in time. But we also know that, you know, despite as much as changed in the last year, despite the fact that, um, you know, uh, economic worries, anxieties have gone up because of inflation, because of what, what many think is a coming recession, we still see this kind of stability in our political system in terms of people's vote intentions. Um, uh, obviously, as we're coming out of this global pandemic and we're seeing, as you said, affordable affordability issues, whether it's, you know, these seem to be other than healthcare, you know, the top five issues, whether it's uh, the cost of housing, the high cost of groceries, the high cost of energy, um, all of this seems to be at the forefront now. And the prime minister hasn't really been focused on all of that, more other issues, whether it's uh, handguns or, or what have you. Uh, but now out west this week with a retreat and they're talking about affordability, affordability issues and, mm -hmm. and what they're going to do moving forward. Has the strategy changed, do you think? I, I think it it 
I don't know if it has. We'll see. They have. Yeah. It's one thing to say it. It's another thing to do it. But I think it has to change. Uh, I mean, in other research we've done, when we look at people who who aren't liberal supporters but might be, you know, um, people people sense that the government isn't focused on everyday life, right? The issues that people are uh, yeah. dealing with, and when the gap between what government is talking about all the time. And the things you that are keeping you up at night or the things you're talking about around the dinner table or with family, with friends, when that gap grows, that's when governments get in trouble. And and I so I do think the government needs to reassess what its priorities are and start addressing and talking about and, and listening uh, to what Canadians are saying. And, and um, we'll see if that comes out of this retreat that the, the cabinet's on right now and whether the government changes its its tone and, and focus. Do you think that it's too late and the majority of Canadians want change of, of some sort? I mean, I was listening to the uh, Deputy Prime Minister today talk about inflation with obviously the Bank of Canada raising its interest rates and pointing to Europe and other countries that inflation rates were greater than ours. Is I'm not sure that's what Canadians want to hear. No, I don't think it, it you know, it's nice to keep things in perspective, but nonetheless, you know, we're, if you, the polling suggests people are still feeling that pressure and they're worried that, you know, um, that, that, you know, their mortgage rates will go up in a few years, that the, the price of gas, while has come down, is still high and it's still expensive and food has certainly not come down in price at all. So I think, I think that, that, you know, to say, don't worry, we're better off than Europe probably doesn't work uh, all that well. But the question you asked about change, I think, is an important one. Governments don't last often beyond 10 years. It's, it's yeah. really hard for a government in its 10th year. And if we do have an election in 2025, when the, the NDP liberal agreement is set to expire, it will be about 10 years for, for this government. Um, but there's a big but is in order for people to change the government, there has to be an alternative that is at least Damn. acceptable. They don't have to love it. They don't have to be thrilled with it, but they have to feel that it's it's safe enough. And that's going to be the big question, I think, for, for Mr. Polyev, if he wins the leadership over the weekend of the Conservatives, is how do you make the Conservatives appealing enough to mm -hmm. enough people who say, yeah, I want change, but I'm kind of worried about you. And I do think that the Liberals should have probably lost the last election, yeah. and they maybe should have lost the previous one, but it was because the Conservatives weren't appealing yeah. enough to enough people and weren't seen as a safe alternative that they ultimately, you know, people who had voted Liberal in the past kind of stayed where they were. And, and so that will be the, the thing to watch is how do people react to Mr. Polyev? Do they feel that he understands them, he's listening to them, and that he would make an acceptable alternative to the prime minister? You're right. It seems like a lot of the, not a lot, but some of the latest election results are simply because um, lack of uh, an alternative, lack of a viable, um, you, you know, the devil you know is better than the devil you don't know sort of thing. Where's the NDP in all of this, David? Because uh, we remember when, uh, you know, they stood up and, and shoulder to shoulder with the, the liberals form, formed this coalition. Um, but even um, Jagmeet Singh coming out, uh, I think it was last week or the week before, and slamming the prime minister for not getting more engaged in the with the provinces in healthcare and such, uh, which is great for him to say. But on the other hand, it's well, you're the closest to him here. You're the one that can pull the trigger on this. How is the NDP making out through all this? So, I mean, when you ask people how they would vote, the NDP is more or less where they've been for a while, around 19 percent. So they're they're not. You know their, their their vote and their support isn't collapsing and and they aren't making much progress either however we are seeing uh, an interesting 
trend in terms of how people feel about Mr. Singh himself. His positives are, are down substantially over the last number of months to the point where he's still the most popular leader in the country in terms of having more people who say they like him than dislike him. But the gap between those lines on my bar chart or my line chart has, has come down quite a bit. And I think this is a reflection of, you know, first it's summer and so people aren't paying as much attention to politics. But I do think, you know, the agreement with the New Democrats and the Liberals put Mr. Singh in, a, in an awkward position where he's both an opposition leader, but he's also now complicit in a way with whatever the government does. And so how do you how do you play that role? And just as if people can get fatigued about Mr. Trudeau being the prime minister, we can also get tired of seeing Mr. Singh being the new Democrat leader. And so he needs to figure out um, if he if he's going to remain leader. And I think he has every intention of doing that. What does he stand for? How do you both be an opposition leader and somebody who's competing to be prime minister at the same time that um, you're also helping keep this government in power? Um, so it's going to be a really tricky place for the New Democrats, but really figuring out what do they stand for? How are they different from the Liberals? is going to be job number one for them. As Does the liberal deal, do you think the liberal deal, the deal with the liberals will benefit them in the end? Because it, it's hard to see an advantage at this point. I think right now I don't see it because we haven't seen progress on the things that the New Democrats said. Um, yeah. They are going to, for, you know, like dental care is an example. And Mr. Singh has, has, has said, if you don't move, make progress on dental care by the end of the year, the deal's over. Um, and so I think there's there's still some time left for us to figure out whether that's going to happen or not. But as dissatisfaction, if dissatisfaction with the liberals continues to go up and people then say, well, you've kept this government in power longer than we would have liked, hmm. that feels to me like something that, that can't be good for the New Democrats. David Coletto with us, founding partner of Abacus Data, where we are in our feelings about political parties right now. David, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. Take care, Scott. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. A year after losing its court battle over the federal carbon tax at Canada's Supreme Court, uh, the provincial government appears to have capitulated and is raising the price of carbon for industrial polluters under its own emissions program. To talk more about all of this, Marvin Ryder is with us, professor at Groot School of Business, McMaster University, and here now. Good afternoon, Marvin. Hope you're doing well. I'm great, thank you. Glad to be with you. So, Marvin, was all of this worth it? Uh, obviously, there's a lot of politics involved here. Uh, at the end of the day, what are your thoughts on this? Waste of time or not? <laughs> well, there have been a couple of wastes of time here. If I can go back to when Doug Ford was first elected, uh, we had in place in Ontario a cap and trade program. Mm. We joined California and Quebec on this. And if we had stuck to it, we wouldn't have had a carbon tax at all. But Doug Ford said, no, no, I don't, I don't like cap and trade. I don't want to do it. So he canceled that. And the federal government said, well, if you're going to cancel it, then you're going to have to collect a carbon tax and, and what have you. They, of course, took that to court and lost. Uh, this was something within the federal government's right to do. So it does feel like a bit of a waste of time. But the, the key now is we've got some certainty going forward. We understand that everybody is going to be paying the carbon tax, both consumers and businesses. And also, what's that? why is that important is that the whole carbon tax is based on the principle that nobody likes to pay a tax so that businesses and individuals will take steps to reduce their carbon footprint. The one poster child for this is DeFasco 
who is investing quite a pile of money to eliminate coke. This is sort of a, a form of cooked coal from its uh, steelmaking plant, and it will do it by 2028. It's going to be the equivalent of removing millions of cars off the road, uh, getting rid of that carbon. So what they've noted here in the Ontario government is that they're going to have the flexibility as this gets deployed to, to if you have a big win, take DeFasco taking all of this off, well, then maybe they can give other businesses a little more time to get their house in order, but they're sort of buying into the idea that we've got to reduce the carbon if we're going to meet the climate change targets. Have we confirmed that carbon tax pricing is the solution? Is that the right way to go? We don't seem to be meeting any of our targets. <laughs> well, again, that's a good question. Now, the people who are proponents of this, and I know everyone wants to blame Justin Trudeau, but actually carbon taxes were suggested and implemented first in Europe. Um, and the people who came up with this idea were actually won a Nobel Prize for it. The argument they make is, well, okay, bravo, Canada, that you have a carbon tax, but you haven't made it painful enough for people to say, I want to avoid paying those taxes. Now, I get it again. If you fill up your car and today you're paying 11 cents a liter with the carbon tax, you know, oh, I, I feel the pain. Well, wait until it gets to be 22 cents a liter or maybe 30 cents a liter. Will that cause you to seriously look at electric vehicles? And that's their argument. If we're going to use the carbon tax, then we've really got to give people that incentive to move away. I still think it's the right idea. It makes us aware that all that carbon dioxide, which is invisible to the eye that we release to the environment, has a, a function in climate change and we need to do something about it. But it's been very gentle so far. It's going to get more painful as this decade rolls out. Is Ontario's version different from the Fed's? No, not in any significant way. Um, uh, the big concern many people have here, Scott, especially when we're talking about the industrial side or the commercial side, is will businesses invest the money to reduce their carbon footprint or will they simply pay the tax and push those costs back to you and I? And at a time that we're seeing high inflation, 7.5% in the month of July, you know, nobody wants to do anything that's going to push prices higher. I don't know what the answer to that is as we deploy this. Here's DeFasco who's taking some steps to reduce their carbon footprint and not pass the cost along to the consumers. Will other businesses do the same thing? We just haven't had enough experience on the business side to know which way that's going to go. So it's a valid fear. I'm just not certain that it, that it will happen. Uh, many complaining about the high cost of, of food, or groceries, yep. housing, gas, what have you. Uh, the federal government reading, uh, meeting with a cabinet retreat uh, out west this week, uh, and all of a sudden the issue is affordability. Uh, what can they do? Is there a changing of strategy here? Well, uh, many people have said, look, federal government, why don't you reduce the carbon tax temporarily to give us all a break? And the federal government would correctly say, wait a minute, I'm sending you a check, a rebate of the carbon tax. If you're an individual, uh, you know, you can't get both of them. <laughs> if I cut the cut the, uh, the tax, I'm going to also have to cut the rebate. And they don't want to do that. But they could cut the federal excise tax on fuel. We've seen the province of Ontario cut its excise tax on fuel, dropped it by a nickel a liter till the end of December. And this is something the federal government could choose to do to, to reduce the pain. Or they could come up with some other rebates, refund programs for this year. Keep in mind, this is a government federally that actually ran a surplus in the first quarter of this year. 
Imagine a government running a surplus. Did you think you were going to live long enough to hear those words connected to Justin Trudeau? So there are some things they could do. It's also worth noting that our inflation, as bad as it seems to you and I, is looking really good to place, compared to places like Great Britain, where inflation is running at 10%. So I think what the government yeah, but they got to, but with all due respect, there's a war going on over there, and they got some issues with Russia. So it's it's kind of apples to oranges. But I got to cut you off there, okay. Marvin Ryder, professor at Root School of Business, McMaster University. As always, Marvin, thanks for the time. Be well. I will. Glad to be with you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We've talked a lot of late of uh, the polarizing attitude in uh, politics, certainly Canadian politics, the U.S. Uh, I guess it's everywhere, but certainly up here now. Uh, and many have asked, you know, why we are where we are and why we are as angry as we are. Many saying uh, politicians are not listening to Canadians. How much of the contemporary Canadian politics revolves around niche and extreme positions? And is this sustainable uh it seems that uh we're spending more and more time talking about issues that really aren't affecting the canadian family at this point let's bring in andrew mcdougall assistant professor of canadian politics and public law with the university of toronto and with us now andrew thank you for the time i hope you're well always a pleasure uh, it seems that we're not necessarily, our federal politicians not necessarily listening to Canadians, although that being said, they held a uh, cabinet retreat uh, this past week out west saying that all of a sudden they're going to be looking more at affordability. Uh, that really hasn't been the case up until uh, now. Are we spending too much time uh, talking about niche or extreme positions? Uh, well, I think right now with both parties, we're in a period of introspection. We've got some time before we've got the next election that's coming up. It's been the summer. The Conservatives are going through a leadership contest. And, and the Liberals, I think, somewhat similarly, are trying to right now set the, the new direction. Uh, they've, you know, they've had uh, you know, their hands full kind of with the COVID pandemic up until recently. Uh, but that's begun to fade a little bit. And I think now they're trying to figure out what it is that people want to talk about and whether or not they're on message on on that. And there's been some suggestions and some polling to to show that they've been losing some support and that some people are a little bit you know, disaffected from them. And I think there's a sense that uh, they want to make sure that they're talking to what people seem to be most concerned about now, which are questions about the economy, inflation, some of these bread and butter issues, which have not really been as, as prominent until now. So they're going to be looking, I think, for ways that they can connect to to some of these voters. Also, not necessarily a strong suit for the Liberals. How do they deal with issues of housing affordability, inflation, groceries, uh, uh, energy, that sort of thing, when it's not necessarily their strong suit? That seems to be the top issues right now, as well as health care, of course. It's actually a great, uh, it's a great question, and it's a problem really for any that's in power. It's not really just the Liberals. Uh, I mean, the Liberals have got a bit of a, a challenge here because they're not new in in any real way anymore. I mean, they've been around since 2015. They've been in power for seven years. So, you know, they're, they kind of own the country that they're running right now. So these, these problems are coming up and, and they kind of own that. But, you know, things like inflation, you know, the housing affordability crisis, you know, these are issues that transcend Canada. And it's going to be difficult for them to to address them just like it is for any government that may not necessarily, you know, have the power to do much about this. But they, they're going to want to show that they're, uh, you know, aware of these problems, that they're going to take what actions they can uh, to solve them and, and, and to show voters that, you know, that they care about what uh, what people are worried about.
Uh, Abacus, the latest data to come out. We had them on earlier today. Top criticism is that the government has been spending too much money without thinking of long-term uh, implications. Uh, Almost as many people felt the government is not focused enough on everyday life, uh, thinking the prime minister is not very interested in the economy. What does that say? Well, I I think it's interesting. I mean, this I don't think is, again, really a, you know, a, a huge insight, really. I mean, inflation has just taken off, and we've seen not just in Canada but everywhere people becoming much more concerned about this. Uh, and you know, the Liberals are not really like any government, you know, fully in control of that situation. So, uh, you know, I mean, they're going to hear from Canadians that the cost of living is a real problem, and that they would like to, them to do something about that. And I think the Liberals have got to sort out what the plan is going to be to show that they are aware of this, and and they're going to respond to it to the degree that they can. A lot of polarization uh, going on right now. How much of that is the responsibility of our leaders? Uh, how much of that is um, a result of their position and wanting to win an election? I mean, generally, Canadian politics is considered quite quite moderate. But I mean, there has yeah. been uh, you know a lot of discussion uh, that you know there has been maybe a little bit more polarization over time. I think a lot of that is connected to what's going on on the conservative side of things with the uh, the leadership race. That- going on and like any election uh you know you've got leader and certainly when you're dealing with uh party elections leaders are going to try to to outdo one another in terms of showing that they're really the true conservative or really the you know the true member of of the party or or the one that you can really trust with stuff and and we're seeing with a lot of the the leadership candidates they're trying to make an effort here to show that they're truly conservative so there's a lot lot of discussion around pierre plebs you know uh embrace or at least willingness to be associated a bit with the truckers and whether or not that's sort of an extreme position. I think that might be feeding into it. Um, But I mean, the big question there, he's running to become the leader of the conservatives right now. He's not running in a federal election. So I would expect some of that messaging to be very, very far to the right. What I think will be more interesting question is to the extent to which if he wins that, that carries over into a general election, whether or not any of that moderates. Uh, I don't think that necessarily the message he's got right now would necessarily help him with a lot of people if he was running uh, in the election. So, But we'll see whether or not he decides to stick to it if he, if he becomes, the, uh, becomes the leader. Does extreme politics breed extreme politics? If we go too far on the left, we get too much on the right. If we go too far on the right, we're going to hear too much on the left. Are you surprised we're paying so much attention to a leadership race? Uh, I'm not particularly surprised. I mean, it, whoever is running to be the leader of the Conservatives has got a pretty good shot of uh, possibly becoming the Prime Minister. So, of course, we're going to pay mm-hmm. attention to that. Uh, and again, most people are not card-carrying members of the Conservatives. So what's going on in that race might strike people as being a little bit far to the right. Again, I think um, you know, I think a lot of that uh, is quite surprising for uh for Canadian politics to a certain degree. I think some of the stuff that Pierre Poliv said about, for example, firing the Bank of Canada, we really don't see that kind of commentary generally. Um, but he is trying to uh, etch out sort of a, a populist message that he feels will differentiate him from his competitors and from uh, Aaron O'Toole, who he's taking over from. Uh, I don't think that necessarily, a lot of that I don't think would be very popular generally, but I'm interested to see, and I don't know how this is going to turn out, if he wins, the extent to which he will stick to those positions. Um, I think that'll be quite interesting. Uh, right now, what he's trying to do is really show that he is the true blue conservative and, and hoping that people will rally to him. And the suggestions that we can see right now are that's quite likely that conservatives recognize in Pierre Pilev somebody that they identify with. But we're about to find out uh, whether or not that strategy is successful.
Uh, do you think the Prime Minister is as divisive, especially when it's, you know, 90% of the truckers vaccinated and makes a big deal out of that, making vaccination mandatory when the majority of the Canadians are lining up to try to get vaccinated? Um, because many would say that, including myself, that this Prime Minister is the most divisive Prime Minister I've seen in my lifetime. Uh, well, I haven't seen anything sort of empirical on that, but I mean, I think one of the things that the liberals really are fighting against right now is the fact that they have been, again, in power for so long. And mm. this is something that all governments who've been in power for a long time will struggle against. You know, when they come in, they usually arrive with a fresh message. They can uh, sort of blame whatever's going on on the previous government. Uh, and, you know, they can, they're in a position to really, you know, implement their agenda and, and, and be, you know, a break from the past. But at this point, the liberals are going to find that harder and harder to do. And I think uh, part of what they're doing now is, I think, trying to figure out what the next act is is going to be. And I think to a certain degree, there might be sort of disenchantment, essentially, from from the base with a government that, uh, you know, has, to a large degree, I think, already implemented stuff that originally was promised to do, and whether or not they're going to be able to find something that's fresh and exciting going forward. And that's that's harder to do the longer that, that you're in power. Andrew McDougall with us, Assistant Professor, Canadian Politics and Public Law, University of Toronto. Andrew, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks again. You too. All right. We knew it was coming. The Bank of Canada raised its benchmark interest rate three quarters of a percentage uh, of a percentage point today, uh, signaled that uh, the key rate will need to rise further uh, to tackle high levels of inflation, which we're all experiencing. The new pol- uh, the new rate is three point two five percent. It marks the fifth rate hike so far in twenty twenty two. Canada's key interest rate sat at just point two five percent back in January. Hard to believe. Let's bring in Moshe Lander, senior economist, lecturer, concord. University and with us now. Moshe, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, thank you very much. Uh, this was expected. So any surprises for you here? What about the rate at which it went up? Well, I will admit that I had it wrong. I was expecting 50 basis points. Uh, we had been hearing 50 or 75, kind of a coin flip, but uh, 75 won out. And so maybe an indicator then that the Bank of Canada is uh, maybe not just a little worried about uh, the inflation rate, but maybe also a signal uh, that they really do mean business in bringing it down. And so maybe it's a signal then to, to Canadians that they're really on top of this. Uh, are they facing some credibility issues? Some say this should have been done sooner. That's why we're getting so many rate increases in a row now. They are facing credibility issues. Um, that's coming from certain corners of the political spectrum and certain candidates running for leadership of certain parties or maybe pointing the finger at the, the Bank of Canada. But I, I don't know that that's necessarily merited. Uh, the Bank of Canada was uh, slow to increase interest rates because when they started in February, not all of the provinces had lifted their COVID restrictions. And so to start trying to slow down the economy, take some of the wind out of uh, that pent-up demand, was maybe a little bit premature. Some provinces might have had those restrictions lifted early, but there were still some very uh, slow ones to, to remove those last restrictions. So I think they kind of waited till there was the all clear, and then they've moved very aggressively to, to try and make up for that waiting. So they hinted today that there will be others. How significant is that? Uh, I, I think that even though I had it wrong, I think most economists were probably in agreement that there was at least another full percentage point to come somewhere down the line. So if we saw 75 basis points today, that just means there's at least another 25 basis points, which means there's got to be at least one more rate hike before the year is out. 
Uh, even in my calculation of 50 basis points, I figured that they would have just increased it 25 basis points at each of the next two meetings. So I, I, I can tell you for sure they're not done yet. Uh, we'll see what the inflation number is next week. And then if it's moving at least in the right direction, then that might give uh, an indication of the severity of those increases. Uh, but there's no question that more are coming. Uh, are we going to see this level off? Is there a sweet spot we're looking for? Yeah, you know, the, the interesting thing is, um, you know, the way that you framed the, the discussion here was you said that back in January it was 0.25%, and now it's 3.25%, and that is factually correct. But I think that one of the things that Canadians should look at is, what were interest rates three years ago, five years ago? Uh, you're going to find that interest rates right now are not much that different from where they were three, five years ago. And so the fact is that what we're really seeing is a return to normal. And so uh, you know, are we going to see interest rates go up to seven, eight, ten percent? I don't think it needs to go that high, uh, but we are going to see that interest rates are going to go back to the way that it was, where you know the idea of a, a mortgage of five percent to seven percent is not going to be uh, unusual. What we saw over the last couple of years was the unusual thing, uh, and that's now just being removed from the books because, at least from an economic standpoint, it seems that we're done with COVID. Um, the um, Prime Minister had uh, been accused in the past of not listening, wasn't paying attention to affordability issues, whether it's the high cost of housing, inflation, groceries, energy, what have you. Uh, that being said, meeting with Cabinet, his Cabinet, uh, in Vancouver this week, and they've announced that affordability is going to be something that they're focusing on. Do you see a change of strategy here? I see it as politics. Uh, rearing its head uh, and not really helping the economic story any. Housing affordability is not fixable by the federal government. There's really not much that they can do about it. And so to pretend that they can do something is maybe giving Canadians a false sense of security. The biggest problem with housing affordability is at the municipal level. Housing prices have exploded in Hamilton because any homeowner in Hamilton is going to turn towards city council and say, stop housing development. It's yeah. my biggest asset. It's my yeah. most important thing outside of maybe my pension. And so if you allow you know, Hamilton to sprawl every which direction, you're going to ruin the, the equity within my home. So it's this lobbying effort that's done by homeowners uh, to try and prevent non-homeowners from getting into the marketplace. The problem is that non-homeowners are not uh, active enough to create some sort of effective lobby to change the opinion of politicians. So I, I just don't see that this is really going to solve the problem. Uh, do you really think equity in your home is, is that big a factor here? Because even no matter what the economy is doing, uh, home ownership still seems to be a strong investment. So if they build an apartment building in the vacant lot across from me, I don't know if it's going to affect the price of my home uh, very often. This is nimbyism within city councils and environmentalists against urban sprawl on the other side on the outskirts. Um, uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, uh, it seems that we've shot ourselves in the foot by simply not building for the last 5, 10, 20 years. But, but why hasn't building happened then, right? So one of the reasons, I mean, the, the logic would be that if you can build a home for a couple hundred thousand dollars, but you can instantaneously put it into the marketplace at half a million dollars, why would we not see profit-maximizing home builders falling all over themselves to build. It's, it's got to be Because there's too many regulations and too many things in place that are stopping that from happening. That's the issue at the municipal level. That's why they're talking about giving mayors more power. And that's exactly it. So it's these zoning laws. And so these zoning laws 
have to be supported by somebody. So who's supporting the zoning laws that are making it uh, prohibitive to be able to build? It, it's got to be existing homeowners. It can't be non-homeowners that are saying, make these laws very restrictive. So, no, it's it's uh, nimbyism. But again, I mean, many ex- experts have been on the show, and infill is not the answer to Canada's housing strategy. It's part of the solution, but it's not the answer. I mean, you know, uh, there's only so much infill you can do. Correct. But throwing money is not going to fix that problem, right? So if the government comes up with a plan to spend, I, I think they announced $200 million, it's still not going to change the basic fact that people... No can't afford a home because they can't afford the down payment, right? Even if mortgage rates are affordable, even if you can get a fixed rate that's decent, even if your income can support that mortgage payment, in Canada, you need 25 to 30% of the purchase price of the home, and people don't have enough capacity to be able to afford that. So, you know, the, the government's promise of $200 million, even if that were to support 20,000 Canadian households, that's barely a, a, a trickle yeah. For a down payment. They're still not going to be able to do anything about it. No, it's low supply and high demand. I mean, that's where we are. What about energy? Is there anything they can do with energy? No, um, not at least in the short term, right? So we've seen a whole bunch of provinces. Is there a business case for, let me ask you this, Moshe, because we're almost out of time. Is there a business case for liquid natural gas in Canada? No. Um, no. Really? It, no. It, it's um, You're still going to have to rely on the same uh, producers of natural gas now, and you're just going to have to add to the story of liquefying it and then regasifying it and creating the entire infrastructure to be able to transport it. You can't just use the same old pipelines that you're using for oil. So you're talking about the development of an entire infrastructure. By the time that comes around in five years, ten years' time, guess what? We'll have moved on to some other form. I mean, with the way that the planet is warming up, we might even be a major solar developer at some point in the foreseeable future. So uh, I, I don't see that as being the, the solution in the short term or in the long term. Even though the majority of us still heat our homes with all of this? No. Um, it's, we'll, we'll have advanced beyond that technology by the time that that technology is viable for the majority of Canadians. So, so what would that be, five, five, ten years? Because, you know, Moshe, I'm old enough to remember this 30 years ago, and we're all still waiting. <laughs> but that's, that's what we're always doing. We're always waiting for the next thing. But again, it's one of those things that rather than throwing good money after bad, why not just liberalize these markets and let profit maximizers find their way in with what that sort of form of energy might be to help Canadians. Uh, if we keep trying to steer the market in a particular direction, uh, it's inevitably going to be that one of those things that we're, we're still waiting for liquefied natural gas or we're still waiting for unconventional oil. Uh, it, it was the Americans stumbled across their unconventional sources once the, the hand of government got out of the way. Moshe Lander with a senior economics lecturer at Concordia University. Moshe, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Anytime. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Interesting listening to our last guest from the UFT who's saying that the problem with housing is there's too many people that already own homes that don't want apartment buildings built in their neighborhood because it lessens the equity of their home. There are so few homes being built in Canada right now, and the demand is stretching it so high. Even if they built an apartment building across the street from your house, chances are it would not go down in value. But on the other hand, let's talk about, if you're going to talk about the 
NIMBYism in the neighborhoods. Let's talk about the environmentalists who are standing on the urban boundary who refuse to build any new neighborhoods uh, because they want you stacked up like cordwood. And there is not enough infield development land in order to solve the housing problem. We have to eventually extend the boundaries and continue to build neighborhoods. That's because between 400 and 500,000 new immigrants are coming to Canada every year. Where do you want to put them? It's amazing. I'm having this discussion with academics who are 20 times smarter than I am. All right. uh, That being said, on that point, let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, columnist with your Hamilton Spectator. He's here now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing okay. Scott, how are you doing? You know, just fighting for truth and justice, that sort of thing. (laughs) (laughs) I wrote about this about two or three weeks ago uh, about this issue in the spec. And the reason was because of what you're talking about. We have a group of people in the city who don't want to grow outward. We have a bunch of people who don't want to grow upward with apartments. And we have a lot of people that don't want to grow inward, especially if you, I don't mean, if you bought your house in a particular neighborhood and part of the reason you bought it there was because, you know, it was a nice quiet street and there was a parking spot on the street that I could get. I, you know, I know that a lot of the experts are now saying, well, we have to be able to turn houses into fourplexes and and apartments within the homes people will lose their minds at that one. If all of a sudden there are four times as many people living on your street and all the neighboring streets, and you can't get a parking spot anywhere near your house when you come home at night and you want to put your kids out to play and there are just cars constantly that of, of all of the possible solutions, that one, I think, is the one that is going to be met with the least amount of acceptance. And that's least. just simply, and that's, that's just not good planning. I mean, because you got to have enough of everything in order to have any sort of neighborhood or you don't get one built in the first place. And you know what? I've lived in many cities in the inner city, especially when I was much younger. And I love living in the inner city, uh, as most young people do. Um, but if I had a vacant lot across the road from me, especially in a post-COVID-19 world, I don't want another building built on it in the downtown core. I want a park put on that or something that's more aesthetic other than another concrete uh you know stack of cordwood yeah no i understand that part i I think that the if you live in the core i think the you probably should get used to the expectation that there will that won't be happening that there will be more buildings because they as you say they have to put them somewhere but if you've paid like uh, i i don't know anyone who's bought a house for whom that isn't the largest purchase they're ever going to make maybe someone bought a business as well all right but by yeah. and large your house is your by far your biggest investment and if you've put mm-hmm. so much into this that everything you make essentially now if you paid a million dollars or 800,000 everything you make is going into your house the last thing you want is for that neighborhood for the character of that neighborhood that you so carefully studied to change overnight. And, and as I say, like, I, I, I don't know what the proper answer here is. I, I think that the answer probably is a mix of all the different parts. What's happened in Hamilton mm-hmm. though, is we've already decided one of those possibilities has been ruled out completely. So now we're down to two. I actually had someone after I wrote that column, true story. I had someone who wrote me a letter afterwards said, you left out one of the options. If we're not going to grow out, we're not going to grow up. We're not going to grow in. What we need to do is start building down, have 20 stories underground, have like <laughs> underground bunkers, like those you know nuclear um, weapon, nuclear uh, missile silos that some people live in now. I, I don't know, Scott. I don't know, but I, I just, I don't see that no matter what you do, anybody's going to be too happy. There's always going to be people upset. 
I know it's not often we get uh, and are privileged enough to get on a plane and travel somewhere, but, you know, the once or once every few years that you get to do it, the one thing that constantly amazes me when I get on a plane and fly out is how massive and vast and green this country is. We occupy a very, very, very small percentage of it, and you know it's going to take a long time to fill that up. It just needs some smart planning, that's all. Well, some smart planning and perhaps some... some um uh, something to make people want to go there. I mean, look, I, I don't believe that when we open the doors to immigrants, we should say, you have to now go and live in this little small town. I think when you come to this country, no, not at all, but you can, still, you, you can, no, you don't have to, you don't have to ship them all up north of Barrie no, somewhere. No, no, no. You can just no. build onto your existing Southern Ontario neighborhood. But just the way I also think that maybe there's enticements that we could make that would encourage more doctors, for example, to go to small towns instead of all wanting to work mm-hmm. in the big city, apparently. Maybe yep. we entice people to say, hey, look, if you want to go live in that small town, tell you what, we're going to give you a break this way or that. Find a way because it seems that everybody now wants to congregate in the big cities. I, I'll tell you what, if I did not have stuff going on here and everything else i could very easily be swayed to go and live in the country on a couple acres right now very easily easily i I hear you scott radley with his host of the scott radley show coming up right after the six o'clock news and you can read them in your hamilton spectator scott as always thanks for the time be well you too scott thanks for listening to the hamilton today podcast you can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from three to six on 900 chml and online at 900 chml.com that's it for us thanks for listening much appreciated thanks to the two wills for producing and dave in the newsroom as always we leave it to you the tax paying customer to have the last word ned janjik yeah i'm a landlord small landlord in hamilton here what person in their right mind is going to build an apartment building right now with the rules and regulations, there's no way in a million years. So rental properties are going to be very, very sought after because no one's building them. And of course, they build them on television in someone's basement and whatnot. They do in half an hour for an extra rental income. But there's no way anyone's going to build an apartment unit unless the government subsidizes that and pays for it. That's all there is to it. And this guy who's talking about not using liquidified natural gas and not using natural gas, just look at any one of these apartment buildings. How do they think they're going to heat those buildings? If it's not for natural gas, <laughs> you know, these, these environmentalists in such fantasy land and China is just licking their chops. China loves it. Just keep doing it. China will open up two coal fire plants every, every week. Yep. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.